0: Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 53rd episode, I'll be talking to Dan Karen, actor and co-host of Smash Fiction, about 80s cartoons and progressive rock. Along the way, we'll discuss how to really get to Carnegie Hall, the lost art of VHS cases, and the secret star quality of The Humble Pencil Sharpener. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. Quick note before we get started. If you're in Australia, you would have gotten a ballot today. It's for the non-legally binding postal vote for marriage equality in Australia. Now I'm not going to mention the massive financial expenditure that's been invested in this thing that may not actually affect change and discussion around which has normalized a lot of bullshit homophobia. I'm looking at UTV news, and I don't normally get political on the show, because as a permanent resident I'm kind of stuck with an inability to affect change in the country in which I live. But here's the thing. I made a bullshit joke on Twitter the other day about telling my son where I was during the great summer of the war between K9 and Turner and Hooch. But really, what I wanted to say is that I want to be able to tell my son he can marry whoever the hell he pleases. And if someone tells him that he can't, that person is dead wrong. So please, I would say vote with your conscience, but I'm just going to say vote yes. Vote yes and send a message that you want marriage equality in Australia. All right, so pop's over. We join this conversation already in progress. For those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake?
1: My name is Dan Mulcairn. I'm a, a few different things. I'm an actor. Anyone who's listening to this probably knows me as a podcaster. I'm one of five hosts of the Smash Fiction podcast, which is a comedy and debate show where we take every week a couple of fictional characters and we do a sort of structured debate over who would actually win in a fight or another sort of contest. So sometimes it's a fight, but we've had eating contests. We've had battles of the bands. We had a popularity contest with a couple of fictional high school girl groups. And then once a month, instead of doing that structure, we instead do something called Extraordinary League, which is an actual play role-playing game that I run for the other hosts in which they each play a different fictional character. We have Stitch from the Disney movie Lilo and Stitch. We have Sterling Archer from Archer. We have Morden Solis from Mass Effect. We have Dante from Devil May Cry. And we have Luna Lovegood from Harry Potter. And they go around on a giant sort of world-hopping crossover adventure where they've been fighting aliens and they've been throwing dinosaurs. They traveled to the Game wait, of Thrones wait,
0: wait. universe. Throwing dinosaurs?
1: Yes, multiple dinosaurs. That would be Stitch specifically. Okay. Tends to throw dinosaurs. <laughs>
0: That's fair, because, I mean, yeah. if you can, you would, right?
1: Why would anyone hike up Everest? Because it's there. Why would someone throw a Patasaurus Because it's there, and you are stitched, and there's something to throw it at. <laughs> yeah, their trip to Jurassic Park was particularly interesting in that way. <laughs> and as for why I'm a beautiful snowflake, I don't know. I guess I don't really consider myself super unique. I've had a lot of performance training, and I have a lot of nerdy focuses, which I guess I used to think was more rare than it was, but then YouTube happened, and podcasts happened, and I realized that I wasn't exactly alone in terms of my interests. Maybe a little more rare than the average person, but certainly not unique. Something that I've come to realize
0: in doing this podcast, a lot of people felt in their little corners of the world, they felt alone in the exact same way as a lot of other people mm. were feeling alone. they were We were all alone together separately.
1: <laughs> That's a weird, seemingly paradoxical and somehow not sort of situation that everyone was in. The thing is, is that I think everyone is nerdy about something. You know, mm-hmm. we're all just kind of nerdy about different things. And for some people, it's sports. And for some people, it's weird music and comic books and rolling dice and pretending to be other people.
0: For my older sister, for example, it was the soap opera One Life to Live. Which, oh, sure. Thanks to many summer car trips where she explained like 10 years worth of stories to me, I still remember all the details else but i could carry on a conversation
1: you basically got a journey into misery with one life to live
0: yeah yeah locked in a car where i couldn't escape and (laughs) got to hear about vicky and all of her multiple personalities and how todd is horrible and about star growing up and all these things i'm just like
1: (laughs) now how long has that show been going on for
0: I'm going to look it up because I'm sure it's been decades, but I'm going to
1: check. Yeah, I mean, those those soap operas tend to be, like, not just long-form storytelling, but the longest-form storytelling. How far back did your sister's knowledge and interest in that show go? Well, she would have
0: started watching it in the late 80s, but she was watching right. it with, i trying to think if it was a family friend or a relative, who would have filled her in on the previous ones in this oral storytelling tradition that is soap operas. Sure. And I've checked it. One Life to Live debuted in 1968
1: boy oh boy
0: it is 43 years old
1: that's so interesting like soap operas are such a foreign I guess media to me like I mean it's sort of like what we were talking about earlier like for me they were always daytime tv Mm -hmm. and so that wasn't exactly something that I was exposed to but to have this in I mean I guess it's kind of like comic books but like where you can jump into this story that's been being told for decades but with comics at least you can go back and read some of the back issues but like I don't know how accessible those 60s-era One Life to Live episodes
0: are. Because here's the thing. What you get, though, is you get a combination of comic books and pro wrestling, when you think about it. Okay. Because you have, A, a long-running story... That they'll still hint to. And so you'll get the equivalent of an asterisk saying, you know, go back to The Mighty Thor, number 45, where he fought the Destroyer. Sure. I don't actually know if that's the issue. Someone's going to ding me on that. (laughs) But also you get a thing where your audience, for the most part, ages out. You'll get like a seven-year rule where it's okay Mm. to repeat a storyline. If it's been longer than seven years, because that run through has changed and you have a new audience now.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the way that a lot of comic book runs happened, mm. particularly by like back in the Silver Age. I mean, they more or less explicitly would just repeat storylines almost verbatim on about a seven year basis. You know, like you can find... Multiple issues of Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen that have basically the same cover, at least very, very similar covers, because they're just like, nah, no one remembers this story where he turned into a werewolf. Uh,
0: But say, how many times has he been a werewolf? How many times has he been a turtle boy? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's something like Archie, where it's like, you know, they are literally taking the old stories and pasting them into the new digests. And being yes, like, exactly. It's cool. It's still relevant.
1: <laughs> yeah. And no one remembers and no one cares. But yeah, at some point, Jimmy Olsen, like, you got to take a good long hard look at yourself and be like, is it my fault? that I keep turning into a giant turtle man? Is there maybe something I need to reevaluate about myself? You know, there's a lot of deeper truths to be mined in those old comics.
0: Yeah. And also Jimmy needs to look at his relationship with Lucy Lane and see whether he needs to be a better version of himself <laughs> than what he is yeah, when he is in a relationship with Lucy Lane.
1: Yeah, man, Jimmy Olsen's doing a lot of things right. But there's a couple of parts where you know, you could maybe shine up that lifestyle a bit.
0: <laughs> so Dan, whereabouts did you grow up?
1: So I grew up in a city in New Mexico called Las Cruces. It's actually the second largest city in New Mexico, which puts it very firmly at the lower end of population centers in the United States. Probably about a 30 minute trip or so from the border with Mexico.
0: When I discussed this with Colin, when they were on the show, it's kind of the coolest name on the planet. Las Cruces. It means the crosses. Yeah, it sure does it sounds like a Clint Eastwood Western would end there. Like it would be like a frantic horse chase that would like end up with a showdown in Las Cruces.
1: I mean, historically, Billy the Kid actually spent a lot of time in Old Mesilla, which was a smaller town that was then absorbed by Las Cruces as it kept on growing. So there's still a lot of like Billy the Kid memorabilia in that area. And people who walk around wearing cowboy boots and hats unironically. So, you know, (laughs) not super far off from a Clint Eastwood movie to be sure.
0: Which, sidebar, I've been watching a bunch of them because here's the thing. When you have a baby, you have to sit for long periods of time until that baby settles. Sure. Our cable network had a pop-up channel where they're like, oh, you know, here's like... Eight Clint Eastwood westerns. Hit green button if you want to record them all. And I went, yeah, cool. I'm sure I'll watch those someday. Cue two months later when I suddenly have a baby that needs to sit for an hour or more, in, like in one spot and chill in an evening. And I've been working my way through. I've been through all of the Outlaw Josie Wales. I'm now three quarters of the way through Hang 'em High. And surprisingly, like westerns, chill my kid out. I would never have guessed it.
1: <laughs> I mean, I guess there's like long periods of. Like shots of a dude riding on horseback and, you know, the fights take forever because they always have to like stare at each other in the eyes for like three minutes. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's a little like more low key in terms of action movie, you know, subgenres.
0: And also like lots of natural noises like rivers and forests and, you know, things yeah. like that. Quiet conversations. But it's weird. Babies apparently hate silence. Like they hate actual quiet because they're not used to it, because everything's new to them, because, you know, they are a new person. Every day you're meeting them, you're meeting them for something like 125th of their life. Sure, yeah. And so it's like, yeah, yeah, the gunfights and stuff in Outlaw Josie Wales, he was totally cool with that.
1: Well, I mean, I guess total silence means that everyone around you is dead and never coming back, so I can (laughs) see why that might be slightly upsetting for a child.
0: (laughs) Just screaming at the horror of the world.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, aren't we all, man? (laughs) Oh,
0: God, it's everywhere. (laughs) It's all happening at once. Yep. So growing up in Las Cruces, what sort of kid were you?
1: Oh boy. I've been doing some thinking about this, knowing that I was coming on the show. It's a little hard for me to pin down. I would say if I had to really boil it down, I was an extremely insecure kid. Okay. Because I wanted to be liked so desperately that I was completely willing to change my personality depending on who I was talking to and pretend that I... Knew about stuff that I had no idea about in an effort to like impress people. Looking back, I had such a lack of self respect and such a desire to achieve respect from others that I, yeah, I was. A little bit of an embarrassment in retrospect, I guess. But I mean, I've always been very uh, intellectually focused and I'm in my head a lot and I like to fantasize about things and like disappear into books and movies and comics and other sorts of storytelling. So I guess insecure and daydreamy might be my two sort of big characteristic points as a child. Something you said reminded
0: me, because I have some of that in me as well. I mean, something I've kind of come to terms with in the last few years. But it's something that I read about Harry Houdini. There was a very dry and boring book that's gonna become a TV series about the friendship between Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini.
1: How optimistic are you about this TV series given your...
0: I barely finished that book and I'm very interested in the topic and it was still dry Mm. as bones. But what they said was that Harry Houdini was incredibly charismatic in person. Like if you met him at a party, you'd think he was the coolest person on the planet. But the problem was because he was such a reactive performer he would pretty much mirror whoever he was with right and then go to the next person and do the same thing to them and the problem was if you were in a you know a closed circle like a dinner party you'd come back around and everyone would then confer and realize oh no he's told us all different things and he would get a reputation as being two-faced right and i remember like the minute that struck me like i read that and i went oh wow yeah Yeah, I get that.
1: You really related to that?
0: Yeah, it was one of those and things at no point is he's thinking, I'm being duplicitous, I'm fooling these people. It's just no, I'm reacting specifically to this person that I'm with. It's only when they compare notes and realizing that no person at that party saw the same person as the others that it becomes inconsistent.
1: Do you get the sense that he was insecure then? Do you think that he felt like his own personality wasn't enough or that it was very important for him to make a good impression on people? Or do you think that that's just sort of like, was there something else about his personality that was making him so malleable and fluid? I think
0: it's a combination of things. I think some of it is, oh, I mean, and you talked about insecurities. I mean, hey, The dude was a magician. Yeah. I have never met a a magician who was not a bundle of various you know, schemas and neuroses and whatever else. I can say the same for a lot of performers, to be honest. Oh, yeah. And yeah, and having read the earlier parts of that book, yeah, it was very much about, you know, he came from very common stock and knew it and was in a time and place where he was often reminded of it. And so therefore would kind of be like, all right you know, I'm here with university educated or aristocratic people. I must be as good as them.
1: Well, yeah, particularly like when he started to get famous and successful, you know, he would have been traveling in circles that he was probably very unfamiliar with. So that would make sense then that he would feel that level of insecurity and uncertainty and self-doubt that he would want to glom onto everyone else and just play along with whatever they were doing because that was probably the right thing to do.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm going to come back to something you said, though, about being insecure and being kind of in your head a little bit. I mean, it's that I end up interviewing siblings. Oh, yeah, that's right. But when Colin was on the show, he talked about looking up to you very deeply and how you were the one who had things together. And especially when you would do, I was told about your game Quest that you would do. Yes. Th- which is a role-playing system that you invented?
1: That's an extremely charitable way of, <laughs> of uh, describing it.
0: Dan Mulcairn, don't you self-deprecate on my podcast. This is about you.
1: Well, I just don't want to oversell it. That's all. <laughs> like, we had been introduced to the concept of of role-playing games, but didn't realize that there were, like, pre-existing systems out there like Dungeons & Dragons that we could make Mm. use of. So we just heard about the idea and we were like, oh, okay, yeah, let's do that. And we had played some video game RPGs. We had played, like, some of the earlier Final Fantasy games and we had played Super Mario RPG for the Super Nintendo. And so... We just sort of did our best to replicate those systems with like hit points and leveling up and ability scores and that sort of thing. And then we just kind of went for it. And it was largely sort of on the fly, make it up as you go stuff. And so that's what it was. It's a little over generous to say that I invented a system in middle school.
0: (laughs) hey, it's that modern art thing where it's like it's something that could be done by someone else, but you're the one who actually did it. So, you know. Yeah, sure. Pat yourself on the back.
1: I Jackson Pollocked my way into a half-assed <laughs> RPG system.
0: Fantastic. And the thing is, as you were saying that, the way you described it, is that where you stepped into performing? or Because, I mean, you pretty much just describe improvising. Just that.
1: Uh, no, I had actually been, I've been acting since I was six. My mom enrolled me in a theater program. One of the most vivid memories of my early childhood was the first time I walked out onto a stage Mm -hmm. because the theater camp took place in like a theater. And so all the kids got together and we met the teachers in the lobby. They took us up to like this black box theater that was in the attic and they were showing us around and they like showed us the light board and stuff. And then they took us down to the actual stage. The first time I ever entered that theater wasn't from the audience, it was from backstage. There was this, like, transformative feeling that I felt when I stepped out from behind the curtain and looked out and saw the audience facing the stage and looked up and saw all the lights shining down. And it was it was like I had stepped into, like, a higher form of reality, like something that was so different from anything I had experienced up to that point. Because, again, I was sick, so, you know, <laughs> my life experiences were, by definition, limited. But it was just such a moment for me walking out on that stage and really my further experiences with theater because I would do like multiple plays a year from that point on just further cemented how incredible an experience that was for me.
0: Okay, and so were you kind of aiming like and again this is me trying to get an idea of <laughs> your childhood career path. Were you like playing up for comedy, were you going for dramas, like were you going for leading roles, supporting what what was your path?
1: You know, I've never really nailed myself down to any one genre or type of theater. It was really just like, whatever is going on, like whatever people want to cast me in, that's totally fine. I do remember that there was this one play I did when I was in either late elementary or early middle school where I had this comedic role, like it was a supporting character, but it was this one character who had this like kind of long really funny speech in the middle of the play and basically like I stole the show with that speech Mm -hmm. because like I came up with like these really weird like character affectations and I just like delivered it in this weird way the feeling I got hearing the audience crack up at this stuff that I was saying was another like transcendent moment on the level of when I first walked on stage so I definitely enjoy doing comedy a lot but I've done So much drama, and I've done classical plays and Shakespeare, and you know, I've done voice acting, and so it's really just whatever is on deck, I will find something to enjoy about it.
0: Yeah, and I think you've hit on something there. It's like, I don't think in as much in other types of acting as in comedy, do you get that immediate jolt of reaction? You know, yeah, like it's one thing to be like, okay, I am very into this dramatic performance, I'm giving it my all, I'm just pouring it all out on the stage. Then afterwards, lights come up, and I see that every Everyone's in tears and it's like, oh, that's great. Clearly they resonated with that, that immediacy of I did a thing and you instantly hear that roll of laughter from the back.
1: I mean, I feel like that's true to some extent, Mm -hmm. but even with really good dramatic performances, I think it's not as blatant and loud as, you know, a good reaction from the audience with a comedy. But I think when you're doing a really good dramatic performance, it's almost like you can feel the audience's energy just totally focused on you and that's its own sort of high and it's different from that of really good comedic performance but it's certainly comparable in certain ways when they're along for the ride with you and they're just like hanging on every word just like waiting to see what's going to happen you know that's its own sort of trip and its own sort of reward
0: so at what point did you go okay this is what I do now as opposed to oh, this is a thing I'm doing in addition to other things, or was that even a conscious decision that you made?
1: Oh, no, it was a conscious decision. I was 10 years old when all great life decisions were made.
0: <laughs> That's when Batman made his decision.
1: Yeah, I mean, there you go. See,
0: I am the Batman of acting. <laughs> actors are a superstitious, cowardly lot.
1: Boy, are they. Yeah, talk to anyone who says Macbeth in a theater and you'll see. <laughs> they get spooked real quickly
0: yes father i will tread the boards
1: (laughs) exactly i will become the bat or whatever it is that they want to pay me to do i was 10 years old i was in my class i was sharpening my pencil and i guess that was all of the sort of repetitive mechanical activity that my brain needed to go on this trip and be like oh yeah I guess I just want to be an actor. And so that was when I made that choice. And again, all great life decisions made at 10 years old. At 10 years old, while standing at a pencil sharpener. Yeah, it's that cliched moment of he's going to the pencil sharpener. I guess he's going to decide on his life choices now.
0: (laughs) Dewey Cox has to remember his whole life before he goes on stage.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All those moments at pencil sharpeners.
0: Slight tangent. I actually went on a rabbit hole hunt to find a decent pencil sharpener. Because I have a ton of like art pencils around the house. And I kept blunting all the little pocket pencil sharpeners that I found. And I went, you know what? I think I have enough pencils to justify an electric sharpener. So I decided to like go into the rabbit hole of anywhere from your $50 ones all the way up to your $3,000 electric pencil sharpeners. Jeez. And ones that are made with titanium blades that'll never dull and <laughs> use ceramic gear so they'll never break and all these wow. things. But you know what I found out? Those classroom pencil sharpeners, you know, the ones that sit on the little kind of stand and are screwed to the desk and have and yeah always gave the shitty point the really long point that i hated as opposed to the short point of a pocket pencil sharpener those are expensive oh yeah (laughs) like i was seeing those selling here in australia for about 180 dollars each jeez and i'm like but they they sucked And then I thought about it and I went, how many pencils did that sharpener sharpen before I got to it, you know? Mm. And it still worked decently, if not amazingly. Yeah. So uh, credit where credit's due.
1: They're going more for longevity than they are for the short-term quality. Exactly. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So that's my pencil sharpener tangent. I hope you all enjoyed it.
1: (laughs) Maybe you should invest in some mechanical pencils, dude. Like that's going to save you a lot of effort. But I hate them.
0: (laughs) I always have that moment where you get to the end of a lead, and you go to extend it, and it extends, and you go to right, and it just goes back into the tube. And you're like, well, this is useless. Why even bother?
1: I suppose we all have our issues to grapple with.
0: (laughs) I have successfully brought a clutch pencil, like those ones that look like a little spike that have little grabber bits on the side. Mm -hmm. I successfully brought one of those onto an international flight without being arrested. Ha, take that, TSA. It was also mostly because I forgot it was in my bag. (laughs) And the guy got real serious because it looks like a switchblade on the x-ray and he had me take it out. And looked at it and went, oh, I haven't seen one of these in a while. And he made me write something and it wrote and he went, cool, on you go.
1: Oh man, I got in trouble for bringing a compass onto a plane One, Not like a, you know, find your way north sort of thing. I was going to say. No, no, no. The ones you use in math class to like draw a perfect circle. Yeah, I got in trouble for one of those because I guess the tiny little sharp bit that like goes into the paper is potentially a weapon. So I think you got away with a much more serious crime, sir.
0: I have had to give many tiny little Swiss Army knives to TSA people purely because I forgot they were in my bag. And I'm like, well, I guess that's yours now. I
1: guess I guess if you're carrying around so many knives, I'm surprised that you're even looking for a pencil sharpener. Like, I would have figured you would have just, like, you know, nailed down the whittling away of the extraneous wood.
0: No, these are the little Swiss Army knives that are, like, smaller than your pinky that are basically just, like, you know, a toothpick, a tiny pair of scissors, and a nail file.
1: Right, so the pencil would wear down your Swiss Army knife, not the other way around.
0: (laughs) You're making me sound a lot more dangerous than I am. (laughs) Although, hey, I'm telling you this, airport security people. You could kill somebody with the Sunday New York Times if you cared enough.
1: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Jason Bourne killed a dude with a magazine, you know. You can yeah, you can yeah. do anything if you set your mind to it.
0: I'm surprised that people with really big hands are let on planes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, sir. No. It's
1: like, but I have to get to my basketball
0: game. No, I, I'm so sorry. You could palm my head with those things.
1: They just make you wear like giant pillows on your hands when you get on. <laughs>
0: Now I'm just picturing an extended, like, physical comedy scene of someone wearing those pillows trying to open a packet of peanuts. I <laughs> know. <laughs> and scene. Well, good. So here's the thing. You talked about performance. Mm-hmm. And you said something in the pre-show that I said I was not going to let drop. And I stand by that. I am not going to let it drop that you performed at Carnegie Hall, Dan Mulcairn. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, I did. That was not even as an actor. That was as a singer. That was... <laughs> You can't just say stuff like that. It wasn't as big of a deal as it sounds like. My high school had an extremely good choir program. Definitely locally known. I'm not sure how far fame went, but we were regularly like very highly thought of. And at some point, and I honestly don't know how, our choir director managed to get us a thing at Carnegie Hall. And so as a class trip, when I was a sophomore in high school... We took a trip to New York for a week. We went around the city. We were seeing everything. And at the end of the trip, we did a performance at Carnegie Hall. And it was really cool. That was another one of those real milestone moments in my performance history.
0: I went to New York for the first time in November of last year. We were following someone's instructions to a secret burger place. It okay. was in the lobby of a hotel surrounded by curtains, and you had to step through the curtains to find this tiny burger place in which they gave if you asked for a pickle, they gave you a pickle in a paper cup that was like as long as like your hand.
1: Is that the draw, That just the secret pickles?
0: No, that was just something that they caught my attention because I was just like, and also in a place that's, you know, cash only. I was frantically calculating on the menu and going, all right, crap, um, all right, do I have enough? I want to get this, and I want to get that. And I realized I had $2 left over, and they said, pickles, $2. So I went and I'll have a pickle. Perfect. And so it came in a cup.
1: Yeah, New York is definitely a weird minefield of cash-only places. Like, it's it's a roll of the dice whenever you walk into a new establishment, whether they're going to take your card or not.
0: Yeah, and especially being an overseas traveler and not being used to the money. Right. And being like, I have a bunch of green stuff. I don't know how much that is. That could be a lot or it could be a little.
1: (laughs) Reveal your secrets to me, Mr. Washington.
0: At one point, I opened my wallet, and I'm like, I have so much money, and I realized, no, you have $17. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And they like, this is stupid. I hate this. But then on the way there, like just turning a corner, I glanced across the street and stopped dead. <laughs> and because in a little unassuming sign lit with a little gold kind of light was a sign that said Carnegie Hall. Oh, yeah. And I went, oh, my God. Yeah. And I stopped my girlfriend and I pointed and she's like, what? I'm like, that's
1: Carnegie Hall. And she's like,
0: yeah. And and I'm like, ask me how to get to Carnegie Hall. <laughs> She's like, what? I'm like, ask me. You have to ask me. She's like, I know how to get there. It's across the street. I'm like, no, just say, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? And she said, and I said, practice, man, practice. Oh, man. And she's like, I'm hungry. Can we go?
1: (laughs) And you know what? She was right. She had every right in the world to say that.
0: (laughs) So, Dan, initially when you said you wanted to come on the show, you picked one subject that is near and dear to my heart and another that I'm tangentially related to. So let's start simple. Tell me about your 80s cartoon experience.
1: Yeah, I had a feeling this was going to be the one that was nearer and dearer to your heart than my other one. When I think of my earliest media consumption, aside from childhood programs like Sesame Street, what I think of our 80s cartoon. I was born, I think, a little too late to enjoy 80s cartoons as they were actually coming out, so most of my absorption of that media actually came when my parents would take me to the video store and we would rent a VHS copy of a few episodes of He-Man or Thundercats. And so I was coming to these probably a few years after many of them had already left the air. And also as a result, my consumption of them was extremely narrow. The same maybe eight episodes of Masters of the Universe, or the same like 12 episodes of the Ninja Turtles. But be that as it may, I mean, I certainly made it a point to go out and absorb as much of it as I could once I was able to, which was probably when I was in high school, which is arguably a little <laughs> too late to be doing that. But yeah, even as a kid, those shows were really, really influential on me and on my taste, not just like in terms of artistically and in terms of storytelling, but also kind of in terms of music a little bit. And yeah, looking back, I can definitely see where a lot of my artistic taste came from.
0: Really those shows surprisingly it's a practice that still happens where you'll get usually three episodes of a show that will then be released as its own thing yeah and like i remember when i was a kid going to your blockbuster video or your rogers video and seeing like a transformers tape and looking at the cover and trying to guess from these incredibly over-the-top vhs covers that look like a comic book trying to work out okay which episodes are actually on here yeah for sure because the other difficulty is that like because I I think I'm a little bit older than you so when you're watching those as they come out the networks didn't actually give you any kind of reliability as to when they would show a new one at least not in Canada anyway on our local you know whatever affiliate we would get like oh it's been preemptive for this other thing or sometimes you would get a rerun a season one episode in the middle of season three or just all over the place.
1: God, the Canadian TV is a freaking Wild West.
0: <laughs> so yeah, so what my dad would do is he would tape those episodes for me of Transformers or Gem for my sister or some G.I. Joe, but it would be incredibly scattershot. And so it was more reliable to watch those tapes than it was to try and catch it on TV on the off chance they were still playing it. I kind of had the same experience of watching the same episodes over and over again, but in a completely different way.
1: I feel like if you're going to be watching a show like that, though, 80s cartoons are kind of the ones to do because it's always like just status quo, something happens, we resolve the problem, status quo. So it's all entirely interchangeable. It's kind of like The Simpsons, you know, you don't necessarily have to worry a ton about like this overarching continuity. continuity. Like, I couldn't imagine doing that with like Avatar, The Last Airbender. But you know, but when it comes to like Transformers, you can probably get away with it.
0: Oh, by the way, I have found... I'm going to drop something into the chat here. Okay. Because I have found one of the Transformers covers that I learned later was oh for War my. of the Dinobots. But...
1: God, the Dinobots, I, man. They're just, they're just the best.
0: They are the best.
1: Oh, that's very good.
0: It's honestly like a Jimmy Olsen comic cover. Yeah. Where the cover has a promise that the show then needs to fulfill, but that promise needs to get you in the door. I've just put another one in there.
1: So this is a VHS cover? Yeah. Man, you weren't kidding about them looking like comic books, even down to the word balloons.
0: Yeah, because it was FHE was the company that was putting them out, and they would redraw like a scene from the show as if it was a comic book panel and then throw a word balloon in there. Because the thing is, they're not quite on model. Like some of the the robots look a little different. And there are some of them where it's like if you go a little further back, that are actually based on the toy boxes. So they have the same like grid pattern and font. Yeah. Whereas the ones I'm showing you were when the TV show was first coming out. And, oh, I've actually found one that's got the back as well. And this is what I remember reading and trying to work out, okay, so is this desertion of the Dinobots? Is this war of the Dinobots? Is this the one where Cybertron arrives and earthquakes and stuff start wrecking up the Earth so the Dinobots build dams and teach me how to, like, use physics to blunt force? <laughs> like, to the point where I was asking my dad what they were doing because what was happening, there was, a t- like, a huge wave coming and the Dinobots basically spent their time, like, over this montage digging trenches and then building up earthworks with the other trenches that they already use, sticking trees in the ground as fence posts, and all these things. And when the wave came, it went through the trench, knocked over the earthworks, and knocked over the trees, and stopped. And I went, well, it wrecked all their stuff. What's the point of that? And my dad had to sit there and explain to me, no, 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 what they've done is they've dug it so that it blunts the motion forward of the wave so that by the time it gets to them, it's not impactful anymore. Man. And
1: I'm like, that's a really clever scene for a kid's cartoon. How many public works engineers do you think found their calling at that moment watching that Transformers (laughs) episode?
0: (laughs) You know, watching Grimlock dig a pit with his teeth.
1: (laughs) Listen, man, Grimlock can inspire me to do a lot. I'm not going to lie.
0: <laughs> did you get that last one I sent?
1: Yes, I did. That's very good.
0: With like actual four panels on the back.
1: Man, these were intricate. I never saw these ones.
0: Approximate running time, 30 minutes. So there you go. You got one episode God, that for is, that.
1: That is, well, I mean, the whole box setup is worth an episode in and of itself.
0: <laughs> there are a few subjects that I've wanted to do anthology episodes on because so many people have so many things to say about it that I feel like if I just talked to one person, I wouldn't get the whole picture. Sure. And pro wrestling is one of them. Video stores is another Because I spent so many years, especially as like an early teenager, around 13 or 14, just wandering around, looking at all the VHS covers and trying to discern what sort of movies there were.
1: What was your favorite section of the video store to walk through at that time?
0: The thing is, I think it was primarily like the ones that would pass themselves off as thrillers that would always have like a sexy vibe. Oh, sure. And especially the ones that were clearly from the 50s or from the early 60s that they were trying to repackage as 80s things.
1: Oh, so they would like, right, because in in the 50s and 60s, the aesthetic was more of the dramatic font saying like, a tale you won't believe and that sort of thing. Whereas like in the 80s, yeah, they would totally redo the box art for re-release in the 80s as a VHS.
0: And I mean, you can see that with like something like, the one that I remembered specifically was Ed Wood's The Violent Years, which is an exploitation movie, but that's not terribly exploitative because they couldn't really show anything. Yeah. So it's just like looking at the original poster. I've just pulled it up here. It's untamed girls of the pack gang. I shot a cop. So what? Teenage killers fearing no law and taking no prisoners. <sighs> and I'm just like, that's very 50s. I'm looking at this. Yeah. But I remember they had like recolorized the cover photo and like made it look like really salacious. And it was just, like, seduction and
1: murder. Yeah.
0: And I'm just looking at that and trying to, and, like, knowing I would never, ever have the guts to rent this movie. (laughs) Because I would have to look someone in the eyes as I handed it to them and say, yes, this is what I want. Therefore, I assume branding me with some kind of mark. (laughs) It's like, that's the kind of stuff I'd look at. And so I would try and discern what the story would be from the back. And then, of course, years later, looking it up and going... these are tame as shit. Oh, yeah. Like, what are we talking about? I had nothing to worry about. Yeah, but you
1: were treating it as though it was like hardcore pornography and would be judged as such.
0: Completely. There's a book that I found in the now-closed Ariel booksellers on Oxford Street, which was just VHS covers of knockoff movies. Like, the ones where it's like, it's clearly a Mad Max cover, but it's not Mad Max, it's a robot. Right. Things like that, where it's like, and they would give a short write-up of, here's who made it. There's little information about it, but we have this that we've scanned in from our archive.
1: Right. Now, Were those the ones that were specifically trying to trick people into buying it? Was it called like Mad Mark or something like that?
0: They were the Transmorphers at their time. Yeah, exactly. Um, Here we go. VHS video cover art, 1980s to early 1990s by Thomas Hodge. What was promised versus what was delivered. Right.
1: Oh man, there can be a sizable gulf in between the promise of a cover and what actually the content of the product is.
0: Here, I'm just going to drop the actual cover of the book because it's kind of amazing and is one of those in itself.
1: Ooh, oh my! That is a bold color palette choice.
0: <laughs> that icy purple, man. That icy purple combined with black and stars—that just screams in the 1980s.
1: That kind of graffiti pink font of video cover art, mm-hmm. like below the metallic VHS. Oh, oh, that is <laughs> that is exceptionally good. Like that could be a Super Nintendo game cover right there.
0: It's a like a big hardcover, but landscape page. So it's, it's like this huge heavy tome, and I was just like picking it up and flipping it through it like I'd found the never-ending story. Oh,
1: yeah, that's so good. <laughs> Man, you think about those like page master type movies where you get like transported into the world of the book and that would be a hell of a book to get transported into.
0: (laughs) I think that's somewhere where we can pivot. Okay, speaking of over-the-top art and ridiculousness and lightning bolts, hey, Dan,
1: tell me about Prog Rock. That cover you shared with me (laughs) definitely could also be a Prog Rock album cover. I had an interesting kind of development, my love of and appreciation for music. This kind of goes back to what I was talking about, about being super insecure as a child because whenever anyone would ask me what my favorite music was i would just like default to whatever was the most popular at the time unless i knew that the person had you know specific music taste, in which case i would talk about that type of music even if i had never heard it before i would claim that that was my favorite so <laughs> you're like yes i love the misfats yes <laughs> those moose fats i'm all up on the coolio coolio yes that's the one so i didn't really develop my own specific cultivated taste in music until maybe middle school or high school when i really started to get into like rock and metal but then some of my friends went to this concert called gigantur which was headlined by megadeth which was a band that they very much liked and dream theater which was a band that they knew nothing about and they came back (laughs) talking endlessly about Dream Theater. I remember I was driving around with some of my friends after that and they started playing a song by Dream Theater called The Glass Prison. The experience for me was like listening to something that was more than music. It was like I was listening to something primal and natural. Like if you were somehow able to turn a storm or a tornado into music, like that was how I felt listening to that song. It was like so far beyond anything I had heard because that song is really unpredictable and experimental, but at the same time, like really crafted. And everyone performing on it is so clearly a master of whatever it is that they're playing that it was so far beyond what I had experienced through less progressive forms of music. There was a clear intent to really push the boundaries and really figure out what was happening and really try to break through the cliches that a lot of other artists were attempting to follow. And that was a revelation for me when I heard it.
0: Progressive rock has a long tendency of being sort of like the soundtrack to a thing that didn't exist. And so it's like you are scoring something that has all the import of we are telling a story, we are doing a thing, we're playing with expectations, but then it's not referencing anything. It's just a thing itself.
1: Yeah, and I think that a lot of bands are more like that than others. Like there's a band called Symphony X. You could take pretty much any Symphony X song and design a big fantasy style like battle sequence around it because that's exactly what it is. It's very cinematic. And oftentimes progressive rock bands will use instruments that you don't typically find in your average rock or metal band. You know, they'll use like full orchestra. Like one of my favorite bands is a band called Nightwish. Oh, yes. And they are known for bringing in huge orchestras to play with them. Like my favorite song by them is a song called Ghost Love Score. And it's this like 10 minute odyssey that like at some point there are no guitars or drums or bass or anything. It's just like visible bassoon parts in that part <laughs> of, the, of the song. You know, it's, it's an incredible experience to listen to, especially if you haven't really because that was the other thing was, as I mentioned before, I was in choir So I had been exposed to a lot of classical music. And I had also been exposed by that point to a lot of rock and metal. But never before had I seen aspects of the two melded together into something so smoothly as when I was listening to those types of bands. And again, like doing something that neither classical music nor rock and metal had done before. And it actually led me to an interesting sort of philosophy that I've taken forward. There's this zen truism that says how you do one thing is how you do all things. I realized that the people in Dream Theater and bands like them, like Dream Theater in particular, I would say that Dream Theater is my favorite band if it's not abundantly clear by this point. (laughs) Everyone in Dream Theater, with the possible exception of the vocalist, who's very good but not transcendent, but all of the instrumentalists in Dream Theater, I would place as the number one or number two best player of that instrument in the world. I think their keyboardist is probably the greatest keyboardist in the world. They actually just got a new drummer a couple of years ago, but I think he's the second best drummer in the world, (laughs) followed by the original drummer that Dream Theater had. Like, the bassist is probably the best bassist in the world. Their guitarist is second only to this one other virtuoso guitarist. So to have this collection of virtuosos all in the same room who have such a mastery of their craft, not just in terms of playing their instrument, but also in terms of songwriting and like exploration, and to have them all sort of pointed at making the best possible song that they can that's incredible and I feel like there's a lot of times in more sort of poppy forms of music where the focus is on the hook of the song it's on like the chorus and they don't really care what happens in the rest of it just like throw in a synth drum beat write some lyrics about love to kind of get you through the verses and you're good to go but like (laughs) to have a band where they look at every aspect of it and they say, okay, what can we do to make this moment the best that it can possibly be? And like, what can we do to make the base part the best that it can possibly be? Like, that's a philosophy that I've taken forward into other forms of art. You know, like that's how I really focus on like podcasting and that's how I focus on acting. And that's how I focus on writing when in the rare moments when I write, like how can I break this down into its component parts and then really make every individual element as good as it can possibly be?
0: it's that sort of relentless self-improvement exactly, or that restless self-improvement yeah. where it's just like I'm just going to keep picking at it until it's all as good as it can be which is not the same as perfectionism. I think there's a difference there.
1: I don't think it is either. And there does come a point where you can overwork it, but I think that that's part of it. Like part of being a master of it is knowing when it's enough and when you've Mm -hmm. sort of reached the point where doing anything further to it is only going to lessen it.
0: You know the point where you whip that cream into butter.
1: Yes, exactly. (laughs) And yeah, sometimes like that calls for simplicity and sometimes that calls for, you know, less as opposed to more. And there are certainly a lot of progressive rock bands out there that haven't learned that particular lesson and go a little overboard. With it. But I think that the best ones are the ones that can also embrace simplicity as willingly as they embrace complexity.
0: Yeah, you just offended Ingwe Malmstein, who's somewhere listening to this yeah, podcast and just like I, punched a wall. I have
1: some <laughs> thoughts about Ingwe Malmstein. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and they're not. <laughs> They're not the greatest.
0: What you just said was reminded me, and now they're not prog rock, but I'm a big fan of the new pornographers. Oh, yeah, sure. And A.C. Newman and Nico Case. And I heard A.C. Newman on Song Exploder, which is a great program that everyone should go and listen to. Yeah,
1: I really like Song Exploder a lot.
0: They were talking about the title track from Brill Bruisers, which is like this big kind of almost crowd surfy, like multiple layered chanty vocals kind of thing. And it's a fun little song. And I'm like, okay this is a, a guy who's helped write some of my favorite music. I wonder what he's going to say first. And the first thing he says was, I wanted to write something really dumb. <laughs> I went, oh, no, no. And then, of course, he then elaborated and said, you know, I didn't want it to be complicated. I wanted to start with something really simple that I could build on. Yeah. And it's like, I think it started off as just like a vocal exercise that Nico Case was doing. And he's like, just, Like, repeat that, and we're going to layer that, and I'm going to take from that something that I need to build into the rest of the song. But yeah, that first kind of disappointment of, yeah, this incredibly nuanced and interesting artist wants to make something dumb. Crap.
1: I just wanted to build something that only idiots would like.
0: (laughs) And if you're listening right now, you're an idiot, (laughs) and I have your money.
1: Lucas Brown. No, he's found me.
0: Speaking of which, I've been re listening to a lot of Adventure Zone. Oh, sure. To catch up for the finale. There's a Crystal Kingdom arc where their voice on it with an internet connection through their Stones of Far speech is a guy named Lucas Miller. And so hearing Travis McElroy's voice every once in a while go, hey, Lucas, what's going on? Is like a shock.
1: When you're,
0: you know, wearing big headphones on a train.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I mean, <laughs> Lucas is a character in that story that they definitely take the piss out of a lot. So, oh yeah, you know, I'm sure. You know, when they yell at Lucas for being an idiot or whatever, that's equally <laughs> sort of stunning.
0: Person on the train's like, "Are you okay?" I'm like,
1: "Sure, it's fine. No, it's fine. it's fine. It's just everyone from the McElroys to the new pornographers suddenly hates me." <laughs>
0: So there you go, listeners, go out and find media that repeatedly mocks you and punches you in the face. (laughs) Exactly. Actually, no, don't do that. That's, a bad, that's bad advice. All right, Dan, so we're pretty much out of time. So if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go?
1: You can find me by looking me up on the Smash Fiction Podcast. We're available pretty much anywhere that podcasts are available. Apple Music or Stitcher or Podcast Addict, or you can look us up just on our Libsyn page. You can find us on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash Podcast. We're also on Twitter at Podcast. I am also on Twitter. I'm at Dan Mulcaron, but I don't tweet a lot. I'm at social media. That's why I have my wife Kit do all the Smash Fix social media stuff. But you can follow me if you want to. It'd be good for my ego if nothing else. You know, It'll assuage the times when I think that the podcasts I'm listening to are yelling at me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and listeners, definitely, if you weren't convinced by Colin's episode, definitely go out and check out Sn- Smash Fiction. It's really great. And I mean, there are some people who when they hear, oh, it's a pop culture show where we make characters fight and see who's better. You might think you know what that is. Trust me, you don't know what that is.
1: Our focus is never on actually trying to prove who's better. Our focus is on making an entertaining show. So, like, the focus is always on the comedy. We have this weird bit that we do called the lightning round, where we just totally mix up what the scenario is, and all of a sudden the characters have to do something that's entirely outside of their wheelhouse. And this is something that only one person on the show knows about going in so everyone else just sort of has to improv with it yeah lucas was on an episode it was master splinter versus general iroh and that was an especially fun episode i think and <laughs> Thank you. lucas did an exceptionally good job defending who is arguably the best character in avatar and i will yeah, fight people yeah. for that yeah because he's great
0: i remember that specifically there was the batman predators episode, oh, yeah. where the Predators from the Robert Rodriguez Predators had to, sorry, it was Wolverine, not Batman, uh, had to fight Wolverine on Pandora. Yeah. And at one point, they ended up both running Navi summer camps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it turned into like a Meatballs-style
1: comedy. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that did not end up where I expected it to end up. But here's the thing, Wolverine's real good with teens. Yeah, he sure is, man. He's finding the kitty pride in that group of Navi and teaching her how to be a ninja. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so definitely go and check out Smash Fiction.
1: Well, thanks. I appreciate the contribution and the the plug.
0: Yes, and I definitely intend to go back because I suggested an idea, and I think Kit has already given me the nod of approval that we're gonna take Jeff and Jane Blue from the little known nineteen ninety three film Undercover Blues. And I'm gonna pit them against Mister and Missus Smith.
1: Oh yeah, that's happening at some point for sure, and we would love to have you back on the show. You are amazing. <laughs> thank you.
0: All right, Dan. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. This has been fantastic. My pleasure. Thank you very much to Dan Mulcairin for his time. When I asked Dan for the flavors of his signature cocktail, he said he was a whiskey drinker, but he also mentioned he was a brandy drinker. And I don't think I've ever done a drink on here that is specifically a brandy drink. And it gives me an excuse to talk about one of my favorite liquors on the planet, and that's Calvados. For those who don't know, Calvados is a French apple brandy, and it's made in one place, Le Pays d'Orgue, which is in Normandy. Now, bottles can get a little bit pricey, but you can also get some that are moderately affordable, and let me tell you, it is totally worth it. If I see Calvados on a drinks menu at a restaurant, I will buy it. It's a fantastic after-dinner drink, although most places serve it in a brandy balloon, which I think is too overpowering for something as aromatic and delicious as Calvados. I had a few Calvados drinks up my sleeve, but I decided to put one together that I had never tried before, and I was a little worried, you know, it's a little bit complicated, people may not like it, But then I took a sip, and you guys, this is a real good drink. And so I present The Majesty. In a shaker full of ice, combine two ounces of Calvados, half an ounce of sweet vermouth, half an ounce of dry vermouth, a quarter of an ounce of maple syrup, three dashes of Angostura bitters, and three dashes of Peychaud's bitters. Shake vigorously and strain into a pre-chilled cocktail glass. Garnish with an apple slice. Sorry you must excuse me, I've painted my own Mona Lisa. She's fixed everything, now I'm spoiled beyond my wildest dreams. Enjoy! of you is recorded in leichhardt new south wales australia and is written hosted and edited by yours truly lucas brown new episodes are released every wednesday and if you'd like to be a guest on the show simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about you can follow the show on twitter at themathofyou and you can follow my wacky adventures at lokified l-o-k-i-f-i-e-d on twitter and instagram and lokified82 on snapchat if you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go on over to patreon.com slash and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge as much as you want. You can make it rain. Backers get cursive tweets, physical mail, and I might post a few of those extra Calvados recipes that I was playing around with before I decided on the one I chose. And there's some people out there who are hating on $1 Patreon backers, but honestly, I love each and every one of you equally, and I really, really appreciate it. If you'd like to support the show non-monetarily, you can head on over to iTunes in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating or write a review. I'll even read out the reviews on the show. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, and there are some epic tunes in this one, there's a Spotify playlist for that. Go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a Spotify playlist with every song I've ever used going back to episode one. That's over 10 hours of music, including this one. Of course it's the glass prison by dream theater i could not i update the playlist every wednesday as soon as the episode is live so make sure you subscribe and get that new music in your ears next week it's the return of annie creighton and the return of discussions of gay robots in space join me won't you like the sort of of time you are when you have a little baby that wakes up in the morning is like you lose the edges of things, mm. which is that, you know, for example, I'm making a coffee for my girlfriend who is asleep, like half asleep, and I overfill the milk frother, and so when it froths up, half of it slips over the side, right. and I go to throw the coffee pot out from her machine, and the coffee pot breaks, and it spills against the wall, the white wall next to the garbage can, and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, Jesus, so I'm just like, I'm wiping that up, and as I'm using the last paper towel, and I go to carry the coffee into the next room, and it slops over the edge and sprays all over the ground. And I'm just like... Was oh.
1: this like just now? This is like a this morning thing?
0: This is like a last 10 minutes thing, yeah.
1: Oh, jeez. Man.
0: <laughs> and I had used the last paper towel on the spill it from the coffee pot. <laughs> so I then had to run into the bathroom and get like some Kleenex. And then run back and like wipe out the spilled frothy milk and this the coffee on the floor. And I like went in and I handed my girlfriend her coffee. She's still in bed because the baby's in there. So I hand her the coffee. And I hand her a peanut butter toast with no plate. And she's like... What happened to the plate? I'm like, you don't want to know. I have to go record a
1: podcast. There's a tabletop RPG that I've played a few times called Don't Rest Your Head. And the premise of it is that you play a person who hasn't slept in a long time. In that game, your exhaustion, at some point you break past the need to sleep and your exhaustion actually becomes like a superpower. You can do all sorts of stuff, but then like, there's also a bunch of monsters that start being able to notice you in a very Lovecraftian way and they start coming after you. So I feel like you're like right on the verge of becoming a Don't Rest Your Head character right now.
0: Well, the thing is, because I, I feel like I've told the story a bunch, because that's the other thing they don't tell you about having a baby. Every Sunday becomes people coming over to see the baby. And so <laughs> it's like when I, we were in the hospital, like she went into labor at like three in the morning, but then got to the hospital and things were fine. But they're like, no, no, you're too far along. We can't send you home. But it's probably going to be like days. Oh, so boy. This, you go home. And so I'd spent the whole day kind of there. And I went home and I made dinner. And I was just about like ready to turn off my light to go to sleep. And I got a message going, nope, labor's starting. Come to the hospital. And so it's like jumping an Uber fly over there in five minutes. And then the baby was born at 3.48 in the morning. And then we had another maybe like 12 hours of like baby tests and health checks and making sure she was okay. By the time it got to that afternoon, the following day, we had both been awake for like 38 hours, maybe like half hour catnaps of like leaning a chair against the wall Jeez. and going to sleep. And at one point, one of the midwives spoke sharply to me about how I was holding the bottle for my infant son. And then she left and I kind of started shaking and had to sit down. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just like, and then Kevin like, you know, I'm standing over here talking to the nurse. Why don't you sit on the hospital bed for a minute? And apparently I sat down on the hospital bed and disappeared from this plane for an hour and a half.
1: Oh man, that's very good.
0: <laughs> I cast blink and disappeared at the end of my turn.
1: Yeah, I've definitely been, I don't know that specific level of tired, but certainly in the area. There was one time when I took a trip to New York, got up super early one day, had like a big performance at Carnegie Hall that night. And so I was up all day like rehearsing. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You, you cannot just... Drop that you went to Carnegie Hall. Oh, yeah, yeah, I-, I performed at Carnegie Hall. It's NBD. No big deal. I was like rehearsing and practicing all day and then, like, big performance. And then later that night, we all went out for like this big party on one of those party boats that goes around the Statue of Liberty. We were out till probably four or five in the morning. And then our flight was at like eight the next morning. And then when I got on the plane, I just remember sitting down. And yeah, as you said, I think I'm pretty much stopped existing for the length of that plane trip. So. <laughs>
0: (laughs) And yeah, whenever you wake up from one of those cease to exist naps, it's like you do it in stages, like you feel your fingers come back, and like your eyes, but then you can't lift your head, but then you kind of can a little bit, and then slowly you like come back to yourself.
1: Well, it's because you have to first pass back into normal sleeping, and then you can actually Mm -hmm. wake up, but there's like an additional kind of step that involves you like reasserting yourself in reality first. That's very important.
0: It's a red to blue shift.
1: Exactly.